So we're going we're gonna to be starting a series. We, this is a, we're going to spend 13 weeks together before we break for the summer. And we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed, as you could tell, um, spending 13 weeks on it. Here's what I would like to ask, though, before we even start. I'm curious. I, I asked our band, we meet before the service, and um, I was talking to Judy, who was greeting out there. So I, I'm kind of curious to know, how many of you grew up in a church setting where the Apostles' Creed, maybe like you used it in liturgy or in some way in the church? Who, who, let me see a show of hands. Okay, it's a decent number, decent number. Um, I, I did not. I, I grew up in uh, just a very kind of contemporary Pentecostal church. Uh, this was very foreign to me. I discovered it as an adult. And uh, if you would have asked me about it, I'd say, well, I think it's something those Catholics do. Uh, that was my, you know, that was my extent of it. No, I'm, I'm Protestant. I'm not going to say that. That'd be weird. And then, of course, I discovered that, you know, Martin Luther, uh, we talked about him a while ago, uh, you know, Martin Luther considered the, the Apostles' Creed one of uh, three binding summaries of belief. Oh. Calvin and Zwingli thought that the Apostles' Creed was among their, their doctoral norms, the Church of England to this day requires that the Apostles' Creed is recited twice a day, one in morning prayer and one in evening prayer. It, I discovered it was this, this unique, very brief document uh, that the church had been using for two millennia, and I had never used it or anything or understood how you would even use it or, or the purpose of it. And, and so it's this, it's this one thing, and this is what we've kind of subtitled this series, the one thing that, that kind of unifies all believers, right? Because I don't know about you, but I can sit down with a Christian who codes the timberline, and in about five minutes, I can find like 10 things we disagree about, right? Um, sometimes biblical, sometimes social, political, whatever it might be. And then there's this unifying element to this document that is used around the world every single day by millions of believers of Jesus, and it's been going on for two millennia. So as we, as we step into this, I want us to kind of think about this idea that we're sort of participators. We're participating in something historically that's pretty amazing, and even contemporarily, like, you know, scope-wise, like all over the world. It's kind of a cool, it, that's cool to me. I like that. And so we're just going to be taking these, these 13 weeks and sort of looking at different sections of it. Now, if you're not familiar with creeds, like, like I wasn't, Creeds have functioned for the past 2,000 years, and even in the very, very early, early church, uh, different creeds, many of them, they function in different ways. One is they functioned as a way of instructing catechumens. How many of you used the word catechumen in the past week? Okay, I didn't either. A catechumen is someone who is um, converting to following Jesus. Maybe they were a pagan and they found Jesus, and so they're this new convert, or maybe it's a young person who is embracing their faith, affirming it, and so they would use this as sort of a, um, well, this is how we're gonna teach you. And each one of these lines, kind of like what we're gonna do over the next 13 weeks, we're gonna explore, we're gonna take them apart, we're gonna look at them, you're gonna ask questions about them, and then at the end of it, you as this new follower of Jesus, you're gonna go, if I know what I believe. I know what it means to follow Jesus. So it was used to instruct, and that's a very good purpose of it. It was also used as a profession of faith when new believers were baptized. They would say, this is my profession. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And, they, and it, was, it was their public profession of faith before entering the waters of baptism. 
Now, the earliest Christian creed we have record of is one that the, the Apostle Paul quoted. It's actually captured in the Bible. If you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul had founded this church in Corinth and wrote a number of letters to them after he founded it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually cites an early creed that predates him following Jesus. Um, in fact, scholars, if you're interested in sort of the nerdy details of this sort of stuff, scholars have dated this creed based on what we know of Paul's life and when he met the other apostles and all these different things. This creed is dated to within three to eight years of the crucifixion. So it's very, very early on of what was being recited. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8 um, this is, this is what we have, and this is how we know it's a creed and Paul's not just writing it, is because of what he starts out with in verse 3, and I think it should be up on the side screens as well. He writes this, for what I received I passed on to you. Now this is formal rabbinic language for passing on of sacred tradition. You get it? That's how we know he's not saying like, oh, this is a little, a little song I wrote the other day. He's saying he's passing on, this is, what I have, what, this is what was handed to me when I began following Jesus, and so I'm now passing it on to you. He says, from the first. And then here starts the sort of staccato-like creed that he received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's... Peter's name, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus's biological brother, and then to all the apostles. That's probably most scholars, that's probably where the creed stops. And then he adds his comment at the end. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So it's interesting. Creeds functioned before the Apostle Paul was even a follower of Jesus. They were using... So in that sense, we could say using a creed seems to be a biblical practice. Does that make sense? It, it, it seems to be something that was rooted in the early church. We have ancient documents surviving from around the world, from uh, Spain, Carthage, Milan, Hippo, all these different places where little tiny communities of Jesus followers, and there were tons of creeds. And as they have found them and sort of collected them, they realized that they seem to be um, what they call daughter creeds, meaning like they're, they're kind of versions of, of what we know as a very ancient one, probably from the second, third century, called the Old Roman Creed. And we've got that up on the, on the screen as, as well. The old Roman creed seems to be one that churches copied and used. And if you're familiar at all, we won't read through it for the sake of time, but you can see if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it's virtually the same thing. It has the same flow, the same order. And so the Apostles' Creed seems to have evolved from these ancient creeds like we have in 1 Corinthians 15 to things like the old Roman creed, and then what the church has today as the Apostles' Creed is sort of this just uh, Creed 2.0, right? <laughs> so let me do this. Um, let me read for you. If you want, you can read along with me. If you would like, you don't have to. The Apostles' Creed, and 
if you might have questions, oh, wait, what about this, or how come you said it like that? We'll talk about all that as we go over the next 13 weeks. But this is the Apostles' Creed. And notice, notice the Trinitarian form to it. There are three sections. It starts one with the Father, the second with the Son, and the third with the Spirit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now, before we get into this, let me make one other comment for those of you who might be sitting there a little worried. Um, while I love the Apostles' Creed, I do, it's, it's fabulous. I required all four of my kids to memorize it before they got baptized because that was, I said, I want this to be your profession of faith. It, it's up to you. I'm not going to make you get baptized, but if, if you step into it, I want you to learn this. I, I want to instruct you in this so that it's something kind of internally. Again, I, I, I love it. It's very useful. It is not Scripture. Okay, um, I believe that the texts of the Bible are divinely inspired. They are utterly unique in terms of being the revelation of God. Okay, there is no divine authority in the Apostles' Creed. You get what I mean by that? Um, and again, I want I want that to be understood very clearly. I'm not in here. Here's Scripture. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I'm not putting them at all close to each other. The word of God stands uniquely alone in all of other texts as being this, again, divinely inspired, co-written with humans, and yet divinely superintended. And I believe that I have the highest view of Scripture. So if you want to think about it, maybe like this. Think of the moon and the sun. We get light from the moon, right? <laughs> the moon has no uh, luminary power, what do you call it? It has no light of its own, right? It's, it's borrowing, it's reflective. The sun is where all the power is. The creed is like that in the sense of th there's no divine power to the creed, but to the degree that it reflects scripture, to the degree that it points to scripture, it's like the moon. It's giving us light, it's giving us revelation, but only reflective from scripture. Are you with me with that? Okay, I hope that makes sense. And again, I just, I just don't, I don't want people like screaming and running out of here, you know, oh my goodness, we're you know, we've got the Bible plus now. No, no, we have scripture alone as our sole source of authority for faith and practice. Um, so I'm not preaching the Apostles' Creed over these 13 weeks. I'm preaching the Bible, and I'm using the Apostles' Creed as a filter over which to see it, as an outline. Does that make sense? Enough said? We good? Okay. You might be like, move on. Okay. I just wanted to be sure that that's super clear. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at, in, in the original, it's originally written in, in Latin, the Apostles' Creed, the very first word, credo, where we get the word creed from. It just means, I believe. I believe. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. For the follower of Jesus, ancient and modern, belief in Jesus or believing in Jesus or trusting Jesus, whatever language we might say, the New Testament talks a lot about that. It's core, isn't it? It's central. It's absolutely central. There's nothing maybe more central. John 6, 27. Uh, last semester, we 
taught out of and looked at this passage of Scripture where Jesus feeds the 5,000 on one side and then they go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and, and these, these large groups are following him looking for kind of more of what he did there because that seemed good. And um, after, after this, his disciples and the larger crowds and larger disciples are following him. And Jesus says this, John 6, 27, Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And the crowds, these are some of his disciples, his followers. What, this is a great question. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus' answer is very telling and very interesting. He says, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. Interesting. I wonder, from your experience growing up in church or from your house, the home that you grew up in, I wonder if if someone were to ask you, or ask you then, what does it mean to, you say you believe Jesus. What what does that mean? Like, how would you answer that, I wonder, if you were to write that down? Uh, Trusting Jesus. Like, what does that mean? What does that that involve? Because often... Here's what, I pe- here's what I hear people say when they talk about, oh yeah, I trust Jesus. They say, or they mean something like, if I believe the right things about Jesus, then I can go to heaven when I die. That's, that, that's kind of, you know what I mean by that? Like they kind of have that in their mind. Yeah, if I, if I believe the right doctrine, the right things about Jesus, then when I die, I'm set, right? That's what they mean by I'm trusting in Jesus, it's more like an insurance policy or, uh, you know, I can be sure that I get an A on the test or something along those lines. And I want to be real careful as we're talking. This series could come across that way because these are all of these things that we affirm and it could come across as make sure you believe all these things, all right, or you're hosed. No, 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 that's not, that's not at all what the New Testament means when it talks about believing in Jesus. In the New Testament, to talk about believing in Jesus is simply to think that Jesus is right, Right about what? Right about everything. (laughs) That he's right about everything he says. That's what it means to trust Jesus, to believe that he is who he said he was, that the world is the way it he said it was. Um, It means, and you think about it, that's what it means for everyone. If you trust someone, you're going to do what they say, right? If you believe someone... Or at least you're going to act as though you believe that they're right. So what does it mean to actually trust Jesus? Um, and I, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the concept of belief. Because we use the word, and it, we, I, th- I think we kind of need to parse it out a little bit. Let me give you, there are, what, as we think about belief, or different kinds of belief, or different functions of belief, um, let me give you three ways that we can think about belief or that belief functions. And, and this, this I, I owe most all of this to um, Dallas Willard, some of his students, people like John Ortberg, because uh, he, uh, Willard talked a lot about belief and knowledge and how does it intersect with our relationship with God. Just, he was just a great, great thinker. So let me say a couple words about this idea um, as we think about what, what belief is. So, there's, there's what we would call public beliefs. Um, public beliefs would be beliefs that I would espouse in order to make you think that I believe something. So it's not necessarily a belief I have, but um, 
I want you to think that I have it. Um, we just came out of the Christmas season. Remember the Christmas story when the, the Magi are coming to look for the infant or toddler Jesus and they run into, on the way, remember, King, King Herod? Yeah. And King Herod says to them, what does he tell them? Yeah. When you find him, please come tell me. Why? So that I can worship him too. So he was putting forth the belief to them. He wanted them to think that he thought that Jesus is worthy of my worship. Okay? So public beliefs are those ones that I, I kind of want you to think I believe, and we have those. Everyone has those. I want you to believe certain things about that I believe. I want you to think I believe certain things, I could say. But then, and then the second level is um, private beliefs. Um, private beliefs are things that I think are true. They're things that I believe, but they're kind of fickle inside me. They're beliefs that I have, but like when the rubber meets the road, they may not, I may, oh, maybe I don't really believe that, right? Um, the apostle Paul quotes Jesus in the book of Acts, and he says, you know, our, our teacher taught the idea that it is better to give than Receive. It is more blessed to give than receive, right? You might say to me, Brent, do you believe the Bible? I go, yeah, absolutely. It's the word of God. And Well, what about it is more blessed to give than to receive? And I'd say, yeah, I think I believe that. I think it's it. But then maybe when, when you see how I actually behave, what I do with my stuff, do you really believe that? Well, I thought I, I, thought I believed it. Do you get that? The, the, the private beliefs are things that I believe but man, they are, maybe I don't really believe them on that level. Um, or think, think about uh, Peter. Do you remember when Peter was, um, last supper, he's with Jesus. Jesus just tells them, every single one of you is going to abandon me. Remember this? And Peter's response, remember he goes, they might, right? I will not. And then he puts forward the belief, your life is worthy of my death. I will die for you. Right? Now, was he sincere? Yeah, I think he was, right? He thought he believed that. But when push came to shove, what did he believe it? Did he believe that Jesus' life was worthy of, of his own sacrifice? No. He ran. He fled. That would be one of those private <clears throat> beliefs. And then there's what uh, Willard talked about as your, your mental map. That's this level of belief, and it was a really, really kind of an interesting concept. He he talked about this idea that a mental map it's it's a it's your picture of reality. Uh, your your mental map is is about the way things are for you. And here's the, here here's the unique thing about your mental map: you will never violate the beliefs in your mental map. Whatever things are in your mental map, you will you will never violate them. I don't mean you don't want to. You never will violate the beliefs in your mental map. But it's just a real easy example, gravity. Okay? I believe that when I step off a ledge of any sort, okay, gravity will not take over because it's working right now, but I will suffer the effects of gravity. I will fall. Right? I just believe that to be true. I don't have to work myself up like to believe it. You know, I don't leave the house and be like, okay, I'm really going to believe in gravity today. Right? So that's why I don't, I don't step off a cliff unless I'm trying to harm myself because 
the, the, the belief in gravity is so much like the furniture of my mind. It's so much the mental map about the way life is and the way things are. It's an assumption that, that I never break that belief. It's that core of an idea in my mind. And so my behavior, always, my behavior is, is the result of my intentions, what I want to do, and my mental map in life. Now, again, I never have to conjure up trying to be, make my felt, my, myself feel more certain about things in my mental map. It's just the way reality appears to me. That's just all it is. Now, this is critical. Often, I may really not know what I believe about my mental map. Like, I might not be aware of what all is in there. You know, and again, we can go back to the, you know, the example of the Okay, you ask someone, do you believe the Bible? Sure, what about that's more blessed to give than receive? Yeah, but then when you look at your life, so you go, oh, maybe that's not a part of my mental map. I thought it was, <laughs> but it's really <clears throat> not a part of it. So here's what I would suggest is that when Jesus talks about believing in me, he says, believe in me, trust me, what he, what's, what's important is that he's saying, I want to change your mental map. That's the level at which I want to go and address of the way things are. See, because the way that you and I live is simply living out of this level of belief. It's really not these two. The way I live my life is out of this mental map. <clears throat> so what Jesus wants to do is change my mental map so that I naturally do the things that Jesus talked about. Um, Dallas Willard, I, I, I love this. He, he's like the most quotable person, maybe next to C.S. Lewis. Uh, Dallas Willard said one of his definitions of being spiritually mature was, he said, a spiritually mature person is someone who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in their place. Which is great to think about the effortlessly. That's the key part, right? A spiritually mature person is someone who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in their place. Effortlessly, why? Well, just like you and I don't have to, or just like we do effortless, effortlessly live in accord with gravity, you don't have to psych yourself up to believe. It's just a part of, again, kind of that mental furniture of your life. See, for Jesus, things like the presence of God was his mental map. Things like the power of prayer, it's just a part of his mental map. Things like believing in the beauty and the value of, of, of love and goodness. That was just part of his mental map. Um, Dallas Willard also had this great statement. He would say, part of spiritual maturity is coming to believe with my whole body what I say I believe with my mind. <laughs> I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean about that. But see, the problem for me as, as an apprentice of Jesus, is sometimes I think I believe things that don't go this deep, don't really go to this level of my own mental map in my life. And the tricky part is, again, it's hard to figure out what's in there. Because I, I got a lot of beliefs, but I got, are they in that level? Or are they in, I think I believe them. Are, there, are they there? It's, it's kind of hard to know. Um, and what I really believe is sometimes made clear 
in certain circumstances in ways that it's not made in other circumstances. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was, uh, or you guys have heard me talk a little bit about most summers, uh, kind of toward the end of the summer, my family takes a trip uh, with my parents up to northern Minnesota. There's kind of like a family cabin up there that my aunt has, and and it's like the highlight of the year for us. We just love it, love it. It's so great. And it's, it's like, I don't know, an hour, half north of St. Paul and Minneapolis, you know, the cities there. And a, couple, a number of years ago, when we were driving through, we went to the Mall of America, which is right in, I think, Minneapolis. Have you guys been? Anyone here been to Mall of America? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Some of you will know what I'm, will know what I'm talking about. It's, it's amazing, right? It's huge. It's so huge that in the middle of it, you know what in the middle of it is? Yeah, yeah, there's an amusement park in the middle of the Mall of America. It is huge. It's absolutely huge. And it's, it's like Nickelodeon Kingdom or something. I don't know what they call it, something like that. But it's, it's absolutely amazing. And in, in one part of it, in one corner in particular, in this amusement park, the Nickelodeon <clears throat> park there, is what they call Dutchman's Deck Adventure Course. It is the, it's the tallest sky trail rope course in the world. It's 56 feet above ground, and it's, it, it's right, like I said, right in, kind of in the corner of the Nickelodeon Park, uh, right above the floor. They have, after you get to the very top of it, it's this, I won't be able to, look it up online. It's not right now. Stay off your phones. But look it up online sometimes. It's so cool. It's, and so this ropes course that they have, there's these huge kind of posts sitting here like this, and, um, and then there's floors. There's like levels and it, it goes, like, to the top. It's amazing. But, and so you start down here. This is, like, this is like where you get all, you know, you got you get your, uh, what do you have on? Your harness on, your carabiners and all that stuff. And, and then you slowly start going up. There's, like, a ladder thing here. And then you walk across. And then you've got to, you know, jump across to something over here. And it's just, well, you're slowly going up like this. And at the very top, there's, there's this corkscrew slide that like comes down to the end. Or if you want, there is also um, a, uh, what do you call that you hang on and slide on? Uh, zip line, yeah. And it's the longest indoor zip line in the world, I believe. Longest, it's 55 feet high, okay? How many of you would be like, I would never, ever do that? <laughs> never, yeah, okay, some of you. So, so we were there, and what I noticed is, we got there, and you know the kids were going to do it, and I thought, yeah, 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 you know, I'll go up too, because I, I don't have a big, you know, fear of heights or anything like that. So we're down here, and you know they're putting the harnesses on us and the carabiners, and they're explaining everything to us. This is how this works. This is what you do when you get here. You do that, and this, and, and it's crazy stuff up there. I mean, it's insane. Like where you're like literally jumping five feet, where you know you just look at the cement floor of the Nickelodeon place. And, and, and you're doing crazy things, but, you know, this harness will hold you. It'll keep you. You can do all these things. And, and so they give you this whole tutorial before you go up. And what I would promise you and tell you is that I believed them when I was down here. <laughs> I really did. I, I understood everything they said. I didn't have a question about anything. I fully believed everything they were telling me. And I had full understanding of what they were telling me. So I knew that it was not going to be a problem at all. Well, what I found out is that when I got to like, I got to like the second story, it was like right here, okay? I got to this, and all of a sudden, man, my hands are all clammy, right? Um, 
I, all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, man, my armpits are kind of sweaty. This is, this, this is a little different. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking down. And, but again, I understood it all. I, I knew it all. But all I could do was picture like my dead body on the cement floor and my kids like living without a dad and my wife starting to date, you know, more attractive, wealthier people than I am. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is idiotic. This is foolish. Why am I, why am I doing this? Um, because, see, my level of certainty was not the same here as it was down here. My, my level of certainty began to, to fade. And that's two more things, that as we think about belief, two other factors... that come into play are certainty and commitment. When we think about belief, two other factors that come into play are certainty and commitment. Now, certainty is mostly the product of the mind, right? And we attach probability to it, right? Like, well, let's see, 90% likely, or you know, 50% likely, or 10% likely it might be and there's there's always a feeling attached to certainty right you know what i mean by that you you feel it's a it's a it's a psychological certainty is a, is a psychological state that's what it is certainty is a psychological state that you attach these feelings to commitment on the other hand it's not an act of the mind commitment is an act of the will i will do this or i won't do that. But see, here's the thing. You can't generate more certainty by the will. You can't generate more certainty by your will power. See, the problem I think oftentimes in the Christian church is people think it's their job to generate a feeling of certainty by willpower. And I tell you, that is dangerous. If you think that, that is absolutely dangerous if you think that. Certainty does not work that way. Certainty, it's, it's a byproduct. Certainty is a byproduct of things like studying, things like experience, right? That's how you get certainty, but certainty will never increase by you trying to have more of it or trying to work on the, because it's a feeling, there's, there's a feeling associated with it. You will never be able to, and to the degree that you, that you do that, you will be miserable in your faith with Jesus, and you'll constantly feel this sense of maybe shame or guilt because you're not more certain, or, or doubts will plague you at worse levels because you're thinking, I need to have a, a, a subjective psychological sense of certainty, a feeling, and if I don't have it, I just need to work harder, think more, whatever it might be. That is not the case. That's not what Jesus or any of the authors of the New Testament have in mind when they talk about have faith in Jesus. They're not talking about that. Jesus is not calling us to generate more certainty. What he is doing, see, you might not be able to control your level of certainty, can you? But commitment's still on the table for you. It's still on the table for <clears throat> me. See, then over time, transformation of my mental map begins to happen as I commit myself to being a student or an apprentice 
of Jesus. Dallas Willard said this. He says, um, the will is transformed by experience, not information. Your will is transformed by experience and not information. Because see, here's the, I think there's a, there's a, a dangerous assumption that we can oftentimes make in the church, in the evangelical church, and that is that if we can just pour more theological truths and more theological knowledge into people's heads, it'll be transformative in their lives. Right? That's not the case. And here's how I can prove it. <clears throat> Have you ever known anyone who, who, who knows 10 times more about the Bible than the average person, but they're not 10 times more loving than the average person? Okay. Now, information is important, isn't it? I love information, right? I have spent years of, I mean, I, I truly do. I, I love it. It's necessary for transformation, but it's not sufficient. Information, knowledge, it's necessary for walking in faith with Jesus, but it's not sufficient for life transformation in your own life, and we've all probably run into that wall when we thought it was. Go, go, go back to, uh, to the illustration of the ropes course, the Mall of America. Now, Again, my body, up on the top of there, I'm sweating, I'm nervous, I'm shaking. My body didn't believe what my mind believed down here, did they? Did it? See, suppose I came back down. Okay, this is, I get to the second floor. Okay, suppose I came back down and I, and I went back to the class. Okay, give it to me again, give it to me again. Okay, tell me about the uh, best, tell me about the carabiners, right? I could listen to the talk a thousand times. I could memorize the talk. I could probably learn it so well that I could become the next teacher of it, right? Is that going to fix the problem with my body the next time I go back up? <laughs> no. That mere information does not transform my experience of stepping into going up into the ropes course, it just never will happen. But I did notice something that was interesting. I noticed that there were employees, most of them like high school kids, which made me a little nervous, and college students, and, and, and these kids had worked there like all summer, I'm assuming. They had gone up and down the ropes course a thousand times. They had put on vests and carabiners a million times. They had gone up there to get kids who were scared and maybe some adults like me who wouldn't come down and they'd gone up there and they have <clears throat> brought them down safely. And when they go up there, their bodies begin to believe what their minds believe down here. They don't have the palmy, the, the, you know, the clammy palms and the sweaty armpits and they're, they're not afraid in the same way. And they can go up there with enormous ease, right? They're freed up to think about other things than their body at the bottom on the laying there on the cement. They began to believe with their whole body up there what their minds believed down here. And see, one way to think about discipleship, apprenticeship, following Jesus, learning from Jesus, is discipleship is the ropes course through which we come to believe with our whole bodies what we say we believe with our minds. This brings us to a, a, a famous passage, some language that the Apostle Paul used in Romans chapter 12, just the very first two verses, if, you've, if you're familiar with it. Romans chapter 12, uh, the, well, verse 2, he says, you'll maybe remember this, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, that's what we've been talking about, how by the renewing of your mind. But what's interesting is right before that, 
he said this, therefore I urge you, that's a will word, meaning you can do this. This has to do with you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, what, bodies as a living sacrifice. See, this gets into spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices that I do have control over, that ways, things I can do with my body, go up the ropes course, and then through that, my mind is renewed. But notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, I urge you, renew your minds, because you can't. That's a will word. <laughs> he doesn't say, I urge you, be transformed, because you can't. He says, I urge you, go up the ropes course. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Engage in those things you can do so that the Spirit of God can begin the transformation, can begin the renewing of your mind. Dallas Willard also said this. He said, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occur to you. I love that. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occurred. See, those kids would go up there and the thoughts they probably never had anymore was, I'm gonna, this is gonna be long, horrible death, falling down. Their minds were freed up to think about more interesting things. I want one of the marks of spirit, spiritual maturity in my life is to be the things, the thoughts that no longer occur to me because there's a new freedom there. You know, I think about some of the very first times that, 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 I, that I did something. I showed up to serve. I volunteered. And, and my first thought was like, did you guys see what I did? I served over there, right? <laughs> you know what I mean by that? You ever like, the, you know, the very first time you, or like, you, you know, things that you just do that are sort of service-oriented. Some of the first thoughts when you first start doing that is, look what a good person I am, right? We should get up, have a parade. I did a wonderful thing, right? The thoughts that begin to not occur to you as you lean into that, someone like Mother Teresa, as many years as she served the poor and the needy, it wasn't about what a wonderful person I am. Why? Because the belief that it's better, it's more blessed to give than receive, moved past this and past this and into this for her. So it wasn't about, oh, look, I'm a good person. <laughs> look, how I'm, look how I'm serving. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occur to you. Why? Because your mind, my mind is being renewed because I'm coming to believe with my whole body what I believe with my mind. I'm moving down what I want other people to think I believe. I'm moving past what I think I believe and I'm moving down to doing this idea of obeying Jesus. It doesn't look heroic doesn't look extraordinary. It looks sane. It looks completely normal. Well, of course you would do that, but there's nothing extraordinary about it. See, for Jesus, it didn't look heroic or extraordinary to obey the law of love. It was just sanity. It's part of his mental map. No, that's just normal. Of course. You don't even think about it. For Jesus, it didn't look extraordinary to live in confidence under the presence of of God. It looked to him the way gravity looks to us. <laughs> it's part of the mental furniture of his life. See, genuine transformation doesn't take place until the truths that Jesus came to teach go from the level of public 
feelings, past the level of private feelings, to this level of, of the, the mental map where the world looks, just where the world looks normal and sane. And I don't know where your subjective psychological level of certainty is, um, but I do know that commitment action is still on the table. So right now, what I want us to do is something that Jesus told us. It doesn't have anything to do with certainty. It has to do with commitment or action. And that is taking the bread, taking the cup. And it's this great act. It's this great picture of saying, I'm stepping into obedience to Jesus. And he says, I want you to, I'm not asking you to be certain about anything. <laughs> That'll come. But I'm asking you to commit your behavior but before we do that, I want us to together stand. And again, not sure where your psychological certainty is, and that's okay. I'm not sure where mine is all the time. But I want us to recite the Apostles' Creed, something pointing back to Scripture, something that around the world there are believers at this very moment <laughs> reciting. Okay? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. If you have begun following Jesus, this is a time that I'll invite you to go to one of the different stations around the room where we have the bread. It's that picture of, of Christ's body broken for us and the cup, the picture of his blood shed in a new covenant. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel, don't feel that you need to do this. You can stay in your seats. Or, and then you can take the elements, find a place in the room, go back to your seats. And in your own time, at your own speed, go ahead and take that and then engage and worship now, benediction, a good word, from Scripture, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.